Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, the global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. In today's episode of Trade for Peace, the case of Sudan and South Sudan, we are honored to have with us Dr. Paul Williams, an expert and long-standing advocate who has devoted his career to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Paul, a professor of international relations and law at the American University, is the co-founder of the Public International Law and Policy Group, PILPG. PILPG is a pro bono law firm providing legal assistance to states, civil society, and non-state actors involved in peace negotiations, post-conflict constitution drafting, and the prosecution of war criminals. Paul is considered a world-renowned peace negotiation lawyer and has worked with over two dozen parties in major international peace negotiations. He has testified before the U.S. Congress on a number of occasions relating to specific peace processes, transitional justice, and self-determination. In 2019, Paul was awarded the Cox International Law Center's Humanitarian Award for Advancing Global Justice. Several of his pro bono clients have nominated him for the Nobel Peace Prize. Paul, welcome to Trade for Peace. Thank you, Axel. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for joining us today, Paul. Let us now start with a question I ask all of our guests. What does trade for peace mean to you? To me, trade for peace means a pathway to a durable peace agreement. During any negotiation, parties are engaged in a fierce bargaining process about sorting out the conflict. But they're also thinking, how do we structure a better future? What do we do with our natural resources? And this is where trade comes into their mind. And then for the durability of the peace agreement, you need a peace dividend if it's going to be durable and you need economic prosperity. Trade is the main street, the main avenue to getting there. Thank you, Paul. Now, I know you've had extensive on-the-ground experience providing legal and policy assistance to the government of South Sudan in its peace and post-secession negotiations with the government of Sudan. For the benefit of our listeners, could you give us a brief historical overview on the negotiations between Sudan and South Sudan and tell us how your work with PILPG has contributed to this negotiation process? What type of actors does PILPG work with in this capacity? So Sudan and South Sudan were locked into a 20-year brutal conflict. As part of the comprehensive peace agreement, there was a very unique provision which said that within a period of time, five to six years after the signature of the agreement, South Sudan could hold a referendum on self-determination. We were brought in during that interim period to help South Sudan 
think about, strategize, and prepare for the referendum and what might come about as a result of independence. So we were heavily engaged working with them on a number of issues that are relevant to your listeners. The state succession to debts, assets, state succession to treaties, including bilateral investment treaties, and memberships in international organizations. So essentially, if South Sudan went from being a province of Sudan and became independent, how could it quickly step into some of the shoes of the predecessor state of Sudan so that it could begin to operate on the playing field of the international community, have diplomatic relations, but also have trade and investment relations, membership in the World Bank, the IMF, and then hopefully the WTO. So we spend most of our time working with the Southerners on how to enter the international community. Separately, we can talk about this more if you'd like. There was an oil shut-in. All of the oil from South Sudan goes through Sudan in order to be exported, in order to be traded. And unfortunately, they did the opposite of what one would think one would do, which is they did an oil shut-in and they cut off all of the oil as a way of putting political pressure on Sudan for some financial issues. And to answer your question, you know, what do we do? We represent parties in the conflict. We're lawyers. We pick sides. And so in this case, we worked with the province of Sudan, which then became an independent country. Sometimes we work with the governments. Sometimes we work with non-state armed actors. But we'll pick a side and try to level the playing field through legal assistance and capacity building. Now, Paul, drawing from your research in the areas of natural resource distribution and wealth sharing... Could you share with us the economic implications of peace agreements? What role do these factors play in the recent Juba peace agreement? Economic factors are crucial to designing an effective and durable peace agreement. And understanding economic factors, the allocation of natural resources, is crucial to helping the parties get to yes. So, for instance, in the most recent Juba negotiations, which occurred in Juba, South Sudan, but involved the government of Sudan, representatives from Darfur, the East, and then Southern Kordofan and Blue Nile, the question of natural resources was paramount. But what's interesting is the parties always go after the red herring of ownership. Because if you're in a negotiation and you're discussing demilitarization, power sharing, democratization, come to natural resources. And the immediate position is, you know, we, the local party, own these natural resources. And then the government says, no, no, the nation owns those resources. But the reality is, it doesn't actually matter who owns the resources. It's how do you manage their extraction, preservation, utilization, and then how do you share the economic benefit? You can give the ownership to the non-state armed actor, But if they can't enter into contracts with multilateral corporations, if they can't get loans from the international community, if they're not part of the WTO or part of some trade infrastructure, they can't monetize or properly preserve those natural resources. And that's where it's really tricky. Because if you're dealing with a non-state armed actor, they understand power sharing. They understand human rights. Getting into the management of natural resources, the formulas for revenue allocation, it's exceedingly complicated. And a surprising number of peace agreements crash on that issue of ownership and management of natural resources. Thank you, Paul. Now, I would like to turn to your new book. Congratulations. 
Lawyering Peace, which focuses on helping future negotiators build better and more durable peace agreement. And it's set out to come out this September. Now, I know you touched on a number of subjects in your new book, Lawyering Peace. But for the benefit of our listeners, can you share a few highlights? For example, what makes a good peace negotiator? What are some of the most difficult challenges one faces while negotiating and implementing a peace agreement? What makes a good peace negotiator is a negotiator who understands, it's going to sound very simple, but who understands that a peace agreement is a contract and that it needs to be implemented. All too often you hear from the the mediators that we just need the parties to get to yes. The parties just need to sign something and then you'll have the UN peacekeepers and you'll have international assistance. Well, yeah, sure, that all happens for three or four years, but that peace agreement, that contract is binding basic law for those parties and the parties care about the details. Now, one of the examples we bumped into was the negotiations in Yemen and there was a huge push for federalism. And it's like, okay, we'll make Yemen a federal state. Yemen had never been a federal state. It had been a unitary state and a post-conflict poor unitary entity trying to transition into a very expensive system of government and one that is complicated. And I remember at the time we were discussing a federal judiciary and the Yemenis, to their credit, said, you know what? Trying to design a federal judiciary out of a unitary state is quite frankly beyond us at this moment that we're coming out of conflict. And so they ended up creating a hybrid, part unitary, part federal. And I think a good negotiator understands that the devils are in the detail and you need to spend the time with the parties so that when they emerge from conflict, they can join the WTO. They can sign bilateral investment treaties. They can engage with the World Bank and the IMF. If you give them some contorted governance structure that makes everybody happy, but doesn't actually work, no one's going to want to engage in trade or provide assistance or enter into contracts with these types of entities. That is quite insightful and thought-provoking. We look forward to the launch date in September, yes? Yes, just a couple months from now. Wonderful. You are listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. We will be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Trade for Peace. I would like us to now turn to WTO accessions. As you know, both Sudan and South Sudan are in the process of joining the WTO. In your view, how can WTO membership help these countries achieve peace and post-conflict recovery? WTO membership for South Sudan and Sudan is crucial to lasting peace and economic recovery. For South Sudan, it means fully integrating into the international community so that they're a member of the UN, they're a member of various international organizations, but they're a member of the ones that matter, the ones that have tangible benefits, economic benefits. That's why the WTO is so important. One of the difficulties with states that emerge from sort of a dissolution of a state or a separation is that they have one foot in the international community and one foot outside. 
that's no plan for durable peace. You need both feet firmly inside the infrastructure of the international community. Now, in the case of Sudan, it's returning to the international community. Sudan was part of the international community, but because of the atrocities committed in Darfur and other places, they were excluded from the international community. You now have a democratic government, but it takes so long to unwind those restrictions that were imposed upon the authoritarian government that committed atrocity crimes that you end up handicapping the folks that we've been hoping would come to power for the last 20 years. So you have very democratically minded, very human rights minded, very international minded individuals on the Sovereign Council and in the Prime Minister's cabinet. They need to be fully embraced as quickly as possible by the international community. So, well, they can make the transition to rule of law, democracy, and they can have a peace dividend. You know, the way to long-term durability is through prosperity. The way through prosperity is through trade. And I touched on something briefly. I want to emphasize that rule of law. WTO is a rule-bound entity. <laughs> Whenever any state joins the WTO, they sign a commitment to a lot of rules. It's, there's a fair playing field for trade. That ethos, that mentality, that approach, the rule of law basis for engagement in the international community then trickles all the way through. It's not something, look, you can sign any number of international statements and like, whoa, I signed the statement. You don't have to do anything domestically. But by acceding to the WTO, you need to implement that domestically. And that requires rule of law domestically. And that's how the person on the street is going to get rule of law because it's going to come through the international community, the trade relationships, those types of interdependencies that are created and managed by rule of law. And anyone you talk to, durability of a peace agreement, durability of democratic transformation requires rule of law. And you talk to anyone on the street, what do you want? They want accountability for atrocity crimes. They want rule of law. They want their contracts enforced, be it their landlord, be it their tenant, be it their trade relationships. And that's why I think it's crucial for South Sudan and Sudan to accede as quickly as possible to the WTO. Thank you, Paul, for that insightful uh, overview. I would like to touch on the trade and peace program and this initiative of getting the trade and peace communities to work together, particularly in fragile and conflicted countries. Uh, what would be your recommendations uh, in terms of forging a means of getting you know, the trade and peace community to work together more cohesively for a more comprehensive response uh, to helping fragile and conflict-affected countries? Axel, thank you for asking that question. There's, there's two key points that I would like to make under the idea of getting the trade community and the peace-building community to work closer together. The first is there's a tremendous capacity of the trade community to share lessons learned about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is, I tell all my clients this, words matter. When you're drafting a peace agreement, you're drafting a conflict, what you put in that peace agreement actually has meaning to it. We all know that, but parties to conflict are so used to making political declarations, marketing, rallying the troops. They're not bound by that language, but a peace agreement you're bound by. And trade professionals, they're probably listening to this podcast and shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, yeah, of course, words matter. Of course, how you describe a widget and what you do with the widget and what is a widget um, and how many widgets you can train, that's all boilerplate for these agreements. That mentality, that skill 
is not prevalent, clearly among the non-state armed actors who are coming to negotiate, frequently not from the government and seldom from the mediation team as well. The second way of collaborating between the peace community and the trade community is for the trade community to think through what two or three paragraphs in a peace agreement would put a post-conflict state on the path to intense integration with the international community in terms of trade. All too often, the agreements when it comes to the economic issues, as we mentioned, focus on the ownership of resources or on international assistance. International assistance with security, with elections, with you know, donations, with housing reconstruction, with refugee return. And then there's no oxygen left in the room to negotiate, right, how do we tee up so that we have rule of law so that we have consistency of provisions. So when we go to the WTO, the World Bank, the IMF, we can meet their criteria for accession to those institutions and that we can operate effectively within those institutions without saying, oh, thanks for admitting us. We now need a decade to get our internal structure in order so that it actually operates consistent with the requirements of international integration. Because parties in a negotiation focus on their immediate interests. They don't focus on how you align those for an effective and durable integration into the international community. And that's where trade experts can provide a lot of assistance to the peace community. Thank you, Paul. Uh, and we look forward to working more with PILPG in terms of bringing the synergies of the peace-building community and the trade uh, community together to help uh, fragile and conflict-affected countries. Thank you, Paul, for this informative and interesting discussion. Now, I always like to end the podcast with the last short question. In just one word, what does trade for peace mean to you and why? In one word, trade for peace means to me durability. Why? The only way you're going to have peace agreement become durable is if that country is enmeshed with the international community. What's the easiest way for a significant process of enmeshing that country? It's through trade relationships. It's also something that enmeshes every single member of society. It's not just the government going to New York for UN General Assembly resolutions once a year. Every single individual in that country, more or less, is engaged in trade at a community level, a local level, at a regional level, and then at an international level. And that involves the entire population into a common purpose of keeping the agreement durable so that they can continue to enjoy economic growth and economic prosperity. So, durability. There you have it, durability. That was Dr. Paul William, co-founder of the Public International Law and Policy Group, PILPG. Paul, Thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace. We are looking forward to reading your new book in September, Lawyering Peace. Many thanks to our listeners for tuning in to today's episode nine, the case of South Sudan and Sudan. I am your host, Axel Addy. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. Subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. For more episodes, visit us at www.tradeforpeace.podbean.com. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thanks for listening to Trade for Peace. Trade for Peace.